I'm David Belson. And I'm Rachel Redan. And this is the Branding London Podcast. The first season is brought to you by Libro Credit Union, a group of epic humans focused on increasing prosperity in southwestern Ontario. They have just launched a new campaign, My Life Here, which fits the theme of this podcast quite nicely. To learn more, go to libro.ca slash mylifehere. Today, we're talking with Lisa Fuster, Executive Director of the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. Uh, known Lisa for several years, we served together on the board of uh, Pillar Nonprofit, and I actually learned a lot from her uh, when she was the chair of that board about how to facilitate the wisdom that's in the room. Uh, so Lisa's a great advocate for our community and brings a lot of uh, interesting aspects of what's going on in health in healthcare. So can't wait for you to hear that conversation. Uh, up first is Rachel with the land acknowledgement. We would like to acknowledge the history of the traditional territory and honor the longstanding relationships of the three local First Nation groups of this land and place in southwestern Ontario. The Ottawandaran peoples once settled this region alongside the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee peoples and used this land as their traditional hunting grounds. The three long-standing Indigenous groups of this geographic region are the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Lenni-Lenape peoples. I'd like to recognize the three First Nations communities neighboring the city of London, Chippewas of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, and Muncie Delaware Nation. We continue to honor the legacy of the space we're in by using the Roundhouse to tell stories, increase collaboration, and work with our clients to improve human lives. We believe that telling the stories of our fellow Londoners will help bring us together to solve problems. Your name position and function in your organization. Sure. I'm Lisa Foster and I'm the executive director of the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. And I, I like to ask, how would you describe your job to someone who's not in your, in your industry? So if nobody has any idea what Canadian Medical Hall of Fame is, how would you describe it? Hmm. Um, so at the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, we are fond of saying that we honor excellence, we um, preserve history, and we connect generations. So we honor excellence through the selection of um, Canadian medical heroes. Um, that's what the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame is about. Most people know exactly what a Hall of Fame is about, um, and we see them a lot for hockey and rock and roll and mm -hmm. acting. Um, but Canada is innovative and unique in that we created a hall of fame for our medical heroes. Mm -hmm. So annually we induct, uh, annually we induct six Canadian medical heroes who have contributed to health in Canada and the world, um, at a celebration ceremony. We just held our 20th uh, induction ceremony recently here in London. Um, this is a ceremony that travels around the country and the laureate um, selection committee are made up of people, medical professionals from across the country, nominations come from across the country. Um, but uh, because London is the home of the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, mm -hmm. um, we have our exhibit hall here where we can portray some of that information. We also um, feature the inspiring stories of our laureates on our virtual hall, which is on our website. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of the preserving history part. We create a tribute video for every one of our uh, newly inducted laureates so that um, people can understand some of the human side as well of them. They're not scientific documentaries. Um, the intent is to tell that side of the softer skills and uh, and help others understand why they're inspirational to a whole bunch of people. Um, and the third part, the connecting generations part that I mentioned, um, you know, one of the reasons that our founders wanted to uh, 
you know, create this enduring tribute to medical heroes in Canada is so that we can inspire the next generation of health leaders. Um, so we connect generations through Discovery Day programs, which happen from one end of the country to the other, where one is happening um, this Friday here at Western, 350 grade 11 or so high school students will come up to Western and explore career options in the health sciences That's at awesome. a day-long event. So we do 14 of those events across the country. We bring local students to our exhibit hall um, and we celebrate greatness in emerging leaders with uh, a new program called the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame Award, um, where one second year student is chosen in each of Canada's 17 medical schools um, and then recognized as an emerging leader, invited to our induction ceremonies. We connect the generations with them and the laureates who then become mentors. Um, so so a lot going on. Yeah, neat. So uh, you know, maybe give me one example or I know it's maybe hard to pick out of six, but an example of maybe a couple of laureates that got inducted this year. Oh, this year. Well, um, or in yes, general. Sure. There's 131 laureates yeah, yeah. at the Canadian Medical <laughs> Hall of Fame. Um, so that's like um, picking your favorite child, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. There's uh, there's some great stories. Um, but. So we, we take the induction ceremony to various uh, cities across the country working with local med schools. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean that there could be a local laureate, right? Mm -hmm. The selection committee does not consider where we're going next when they're choosing from the 66 to 75 nominations. They choose wow. based on merit, so um, annually. But um, our med schools have been getting very good at ensuring that there are some strong quality nominations in and have been in for a few years mm -hmm. when they know that they're going to host. So we were fortunate this year because obviously it's a lot more of a compelling local case if there is a local laureate. Yep. So Dr. Vladimir Hachinsky was uh, inducted this year. He's a world-renowned neurologist working right here um, at LHSC and at Schulich, um, known for uh, sort of you know, being innovative in, in changing our understanding of um, stroke and uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, a term that he coined is stroke attack. So people talk about a heart attack and, and it, it causes alarm and urgency, mm -hmm. right? Stroke seems to be this passive thing in the past that may or may not be happening. When, you know, what he, uh, from a public health perspective, has helped people understand is there's urgency if mm -hmm. you think someone's having a stroke. So stroke, sometimes, you know, we live in the language we speak, right? That's so yep. attributing urgent language to, um, to something like a stroke can help people um, act more quickly. Now, that is of all the things he's done, you know, the most it, it's, 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 I'm glossing over the deep science cause that's not my foray. Um, but his, uh, he has changed people's un deep understanding of dementia and the treatment and the prevention, mm -hmm. um, of, uh, stroke and dementia. It's amazing. And I know this is me cheating cause I'm familiar with the organization or at least we've chatted in the past. Um, it's not always just medical, uh, like doctors that get inducted. It can mm -hmm. be people who have changed medicine and you had a good example at one point when we were talking a year ago maybe around somebody who improved surgical techniques or made the operating room safety safer or something you know or what was it um, that was really interesting it was well, a simple we might have thought of maybe we talked about Dr. May Cohen. Um we might have talked about others but yeah. um Dr. May Cohen um was a family doctor for 20 years, and uh, but then got recruited at MAC to actually develop curriculum um, 
around family medicine that, believe it or not, believe it or not, <laughs> what's kind of shocking is that this needed to happen, mm-hmm. um, but developed curriculum to help uh, family physicians better understand how to treat both men and women. Okay, yeah, so, for example, great, yeah. there was a time in this country when med students only ever saw male cadavers. They mm-hmm. never even saw a female cadaver. That was cadaver. the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, remember, yeah. I, I know. It's shocking. Yeah. You never saw a female cadaver. Um, and that changed thanks to someone like Dr. May Cohen. But as she professionalized um, family medicine and women's studies in family medicine, she also helped to professionalize the field for women doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a real um, founder in that field, leader and pioneer in that area. Um, so she was inducted a few years ago. She's a phenomenal. She comes every year to our ceremony. She's a phenomenal okay. woman. So something simple like a, a, a simple innovation of, hey, why don't we, if we're uh, learning on male cadavers, why not learn female yeah, Biology it's kind of crazy to think it was such a male-dominated field mm-hmm. for so very long. Um, of the many laureates in the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame, many, many, you know, this were, were disproportionately populated by males as compared to the current enrollment in medical schools, because mm-hmm. now more than half the people in medical schools are women. Um, but we need a bit of, you know, this is an end of career honor or late mm-hmm. career honor. So that's yeah, going to catch take, up. Yeah, for sure. Yes, and I it mean, is catching up. I guess what's interesting, you know, uh, we're more familiar in my realm with engineering and computer science, and we have still seen the intake uh, be predominantly male. So do you have any ideas why? The, the you know the science of medicine has been able to break through and have more mm-hmm. female participation that's in interesting engineering i've never thought of it i before, haven't either but... because you're right stem the pure science technology yeah. engineering math um still are still disproportionately imbalanced i have no uh scientific or rooted idea david but um Healthcare is a has always been a female dominated profession. Mm-hmm. Nurses were women. Yeah. Um, so I you know, people providing a lot of those direct skills, and many of those women in the early days might well have become doctors, except that they weren't allowed to even be educated. Right. Right. Emily yep. Stowe is another person we just inducted. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just still shocking to me that it took us this long to induct her. <laughs> First female to be licensed to practice medicine in this country. Yeah. So here is an innovative woman. They said at U of T, no, we don't take women. She went to New York State, who had become a little more progressive mm-hmm. and did, um, came back to Canada. They wouldn't. The college wouldn't license her to practice, so she practiced anyway for up to 10 years yeah, in wow. family medicine. She became the first woman licensed finally to be practiced by the Royal College. And... Um, and her daughter was the first female to graduate from U of T Medical School. Oh, wow. So she advocated, yep. her advocacy continued, obviously. She helped form the, um, I think it's called the Women, Women's Literary Guild, which was um, a secret code name for the suffragette movement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and before all that, she was Ontario's first female principal of, a high, of an elementary school. So um, wow. breaking those barriers, I mean, the amount... The amount of, of confidence and energy and optimism it must take to continue when you're not even allowed to be educated like men were. And remember, people would have treated a woman trying to be educated yeah. the way a racist person would treat someone, you know, of another color trying to vote. It yeah. was, you know, well, we had to fight that too as women. Um, so um, took a lot of strength. But I, I, I wonder if it isn't that there was there's so many women in healthcare field anyway. Um, certainly, there's an encouragement in sciences for 
for women and yep. boys and girls. Um, girls are probably just smarter than boys, really, I think, David. So <laughs> <laughs> I, finally, that's coming to fruition. <laughs> I, I don't know that I can even argue that, uh, that point based on my experience. Uh, they seem pretty, pretty even anyway. I think I'd have to go. Uh, I have four boys and four girls, so I can't. I don't even think there's a safe argument for me to make there, so I'm going to move on quickly. But, uh, you know, it's interesting because I think it, it maybe I hadn't thought of it before, but an opportunity to look at, you know, if we continue to see low enrollment in uh, in the uh, the engineering side, the computer sciences side, uh, look to see what happened in medical science that eventually broke down the mm-hmm. barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Is a, it's a huge issue with our industry, you know, when there's um, a lack of development talent uh, and an entire half of the population will consider it as a, a valid career. It, 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 that's the easiest way I see to solve yeah, the, yeah. the supply and demand problems is get more uh, women involved in, in technology, sure. but um, it is not it's happening. not emerging yeah. as quickly as we would like it. So someone great for you to talk to would be Bonnie Schmidt. She's the um, yeah, CEO yeah, of Let's Talk yeah. Science. Oh, yeah. I right? you that under my list. Yeah. I just, Actually, making a note right now. <laughs> well, another national, locally yep. based organization. Yeah, she's great. I've met with her a few times. All right, next question on the list was, "Why do you live in London?" Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I'm not a Londoner in that classic sense, in that I wasn't born here, and my grandparents weren't born here. Um, I grew up and was born and raised in Hamilton. My husband's from Sarnia. We met working in Toronto where our first two children were born. Um, So from a purely pragmatic perspective, we moved to London because Mm -hmm. honestly, it was in between London and Sarnia. (laughs) Um, We had no family here. Uh, I had friends who went to Western, so spent some time in my ill-spent youth here. But um, but, uh, everybody you talk to said... Places like Hamilton and Toronto will say, oh, London, oh, that's, yeah, that's a nice place to raise kids. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I didn't really know what that meant. Mm -hmm. Um, um, I thought Toronto was a perfectly nice place to raise kids, but, uh, but the housing market didn't necessarily agree with us. So, um, so here we came and that was in 1995. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've stayed, obviously Mm -hmm. we've endured for a long time and it's certainly our home. Um, We raised our family here. We had our third child here. It, so there's some really incredible things about London that I think um, maybe only uh, someone who's lived half their life somewhere else might really appreciate. Maybe not. Maybe all Londoners appreciate it. But coming from the bigger cities, um, you know, on a hot July day in Toronto, when all you want to do is escape the big city and the concrete, you almost have to dig deep to even find the energy Mm -hmm. to do it right it's like god i'm gonna have to fight for the highway and get to the (laughs) highway and it becomes like and i'm not kidding i'm not i can't overstate the you you know the planning and energy involved in just getting out of the city Mm -hmm. um in london we're situated so perfectly in southwestern ontario i hope people here really appreciate it i think it's a massive contributor to the enjoyment of living in this place Mm -hmm. we're a city we're not a little small town. I'm a city girl. So I like a certain amount of population and all the amenities that go with that thriving culture, um, arts, um, people around a downtown core, but you're still a country drive that only takes an hour Mm -hmm. either way to a great lake. Mm -hmm. And it's not stressful. It's beautiful. It's, uh, there's no traffic. Um, it, uh, so 
you know, and you're still only two hours from a really big city if you need to be. Um, although certainly we've gone back to Toronto less and less and less over the years. Um, so I think, you know, in part we start began our family and raised our kids and who wants to move, you know, through partway through that. But, but more than that, we built our lives Mm -hmm. and we became embedded in the community and, in some ways, London is the city, but that has a town feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's big and has the amenities, but there's still community. And I think that's because we're not really a bedroom community to anybody, right? Yep. We are kind of the biggest thing that there is in southwestern Ontario. Um, and the things that have to happen here, you know, you can't just drive an hour to, I don't know, watch a hockey game in Hamilton. I mean, I guess you can go a couple hours to Detroit or Toronto, but yeah. that's still a far enough distance that um, we're the destination yeah. instead of anyone trying to flee it. And I think, you know, those two things combined to have made it just a really unique um, and wonderful place to live. Cool. What do you think London does better than anyone else? I don't, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer. Um, I think part of it is, you know, maybe, maybe it's that we've been very skilled out of necessity, um, mm-hmm. because of the way the world has operated and not because of anybody's lack of ability to control things, but we've been very successful at reinventing ourselves. I think over the years, um, necessity is the mother of invention, of course. Um, you know, there's those old days when we were, uh, uh, a head office for insurance companies and Canada Trust and, and you know, Labatt head offices and mm-hmm. that people thought of us as a white collar, um, wealthy town. And uh, I don't think those things could, w- would be appropriate to describe the city anymore. We're far, far more of our um, activity is manufacturing mm-hmm. and, uh, and other commercial enterprises. So, um, but, but, but it hasn't stopped, you know, the growth and the thriving um, uh, pulse of the city, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we're, look at what we're doing right now down with our downtown core. Mm-hmm. We're looking and saying, you know, we need people want this in order for a younger group of people to stay or to even choose this as a se- destination of settlement. People are looking for um, more communal gathering not places like a restaurant, but areas like a downtown core. And mm-hmm. so um, you see some great innovation happening with the, the Flex Street or yeah, whatever we're calling Flex it these Street, days. Yeah. Yeah. I assume <laughs> that's what you're Street. referring to. Yeah, yeah, that whole, just the whole, you know, the, it started earlier though, right? With mm-hmm. the um, Budweiser Gardens yep. and the market. I remember Forks when I first came here, the controversy of whether or not the JLC should go downtown. Yeah, I came about the same area, or oh, era, yeah. Yeah, and I was, I remember thinking, it has to go downtown. Are you kidding me? Do not put it on the outskirts of the city yeah. so that you can park a little more easily. It, you need this thriving pulse to feel like people are in something big while still enjoying the beautiness of, um, you know, of being in in southwestern Ontario, which itself overall isn't uh, a huge metropolis. So um, I think we've been very good at and and it that's happened from a variety of different uh, community groups from different sectors, from entrepreneurs like yourself, from counselors. I mean, sometimes we really like to get down on ourselves and whine a little too much, perhaps, about 
what isn't perfect or what hasn't gone perfectly well. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's the nature of democracy, right? You can't do things to please people. But despite all that, despite some crazy controversies along the way, (laughs) um, we've come a long way. So it's a city that reinvents itself really, really well. I like that. Um, Yeah, one of the, I think it was Peter Fregiscato, I think his thing was resiliency, same sort of idea, different, slightly different lens, but uh, the ability to kind of bounce back and try some new things. Yeah. There's a, uh, you know, I, I see it in my daily travels, the, I call it entrepreneurial ecosystem, but there's, uh, you know, there's a vibrancy here that's, I don't think appreciated if you're not in the ecosystem. And that's where I think it's very easy to get down on city because there aren't the marquee, you know, successes like you would have a rim or a, an open text in Waterloo is the biggest right. example I can give right. that employs 10,000, 20,000 people. We just don't have those stories here, but right. we have hundreds, if not thousands of little amazing success stories that if you start to listen, you can actually appreciate there's some amazing things happening in the city. And that's yes, there are people. All of those are, are driven by people trying to fill an existing void, yeah. right? Whether it's um, Tech Alliance or um, the London Medical Network that's looking at innovation and commercialization mm-hmm. or the, you know, nonprofit sector. I mean, it's, it's you know, arts and culture. It, it's it's pretty fascinating, actually, that, that people feel so moved and compelled to come together to be innovative in that way. Agreed. Uh, what does innovation mean to you? I mean, I guess it means what it would mean to anyone, right? It's, you know, upset the apple cart don't uh don't accept the status quo revolution i think could be Mm -hmm. you know part of what innovation is and um um i'm a change agent as a person so it's it's in my nature to to not maybe always accept the status quo Mm -hmm. um and i think that innovation lies in that. So sometimes it's out of necessity, as we've said, it's just something's not working. So you've got to look at another way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, um, or it's just, you know, personalities and people who are constantly looking around and maybe getting a little bored with the way it is and saying, well, what can we do a little better and how can it be done differently? So those are, um, I mean, innovation fuels humankind i suppose Mm -hmm. right i mean we innovated and invented the wheel we innovated (laughs) and became an agrarian society and started Mm -hmm. planting instead of being nomads so i think for the vast majority of our species there is some inherency in there um Mm -hmm. and that's evident through the evolution of our species um so that's i don't know i yeah i think it's it's change uh how is your organization innovative well, we're a very small organization. There's a couple of things I'd say about that. First of all, we were founded by innovators. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Calvin Stiller himself is uh, one of the greatest examples. You might even want to speak to him mm-hmm. of innovation that uh, the city has ever had um, and is a laureate of the Canadian Medical Hall of Fame. But, you know, acted on an idea proposed to him as by his son that, you know, if we do have a Hall of Fame for all these singers and dancers, why don't we have one for Mm -hmm. um, people who do something as vital as contribute to health? So um, inherently, we were started um, by innovators and we celebrate innovators and every every year, Um, you know, we I work with um, people locally and nationally 
um, who are some of Canada's most incredible innovators, and it's a tremendous privilege to do so. I am not a scientist. I have no science background, but um, it's it's pretty uh, humbling to um, work with some of the minds and uh, the innovative and ideas people that I get to touch um, brush shoulders with every day and they it is it, because if you don't work with those people ever we we have a tendency sometimes maybe to put really smart people on a pedestal mm-hmm. right really great people on this pedestal and we we tend to like to do that I think because it separates them from us and then we can sort of put it there and maybe let ourselves off the hook a little bit and say well yeah but they're you know, they're so great or they're so smart or they're so rich and, and forgetting maybe that actually, no, they're just people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They went to grade eight, they went to grade 10, they had some pitfalls along the way. They put their pants on one, you know, leg at a time. And the more you work with innovative and smart people, frankly, um, the more, um, just the more taken I've become with their sheer humanness, yeah. right? Um, so um, it's uh, it, it certainly infiltrates into our organization. So um, from that perspective, you know, our core audiences are you know, a lot of really innovative people. I also would say, um, having worked in both the private sector and the nonprofit sector, um, I think any nonprofit is innovative <laughs> because it has to be. Mm-hmm. Um, no other sector, I don't think, really has to consult constantly prove their impact explain mm-hmm. how you know how what to a variety of funders why they matter and why they matter more than some other needy organization um it's a little bit easy to be innovative when you throw money at something mm-hmm. big corporations have capital right and they're they have you know probably innovation buildings <laughs> go innovate. Yep. <laughs> we're gonna pay you people to do that it nonprofit sector you know, or, or even small business, as I'm sure you would, you would feel yourself. There's none of that. There's none of that capital. There's just good old ingenuity mm-hmm. um, and trying to figure out how constantly to be more efficient and do more um, with what you have and to get more to do more. So um, in those ways, I think we are like any other small nonprofit where, or any nonprofit where we're innovative because That's we have to be. Interesting. I think with um, what will be interesting, I think with the um, social business movement b corp movement um the millennial movement you know you can take whatever movement you want i I don't know the corporations will be able to let themselves off the hook to the same extent that they have been on uh proving your impact i think it's going to be really hard to hire a millennial workforce uh if you're just innovative without proving your impact so i think uh, you know small and medium businesses would be well uh, advised to learn from our nonprofit friends on that you know, if you're, because uh, they, they have had to innovate in that way of telling their stories, of proving their impact, of, of measuring what matters. And that's one of the B Corp sort of slogans. Um, but I think uh, the millennial workforce was really the first experience I had with it. But you know, you, you suddenly have a workforce, a generation that um, is really only interested in working, doing yeah. meaningful work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And to the extent that that continues, uh, the, the small, medium, uh, business sector uh, can learn a lot from nonprofits and understanding oh, how to, to do that. So I that's I learned a lot from my volunteer experience at Pillar. Yeah. But um, even just how to how to address a workforce that's looking for for impact. Um, 
So I, I think, think you have to just you'll have to justify yourself in similar ways going forward, but probably more on the workforce retention rather yeah. than yeah, funder. phenomenal. Well, you're right because in the old days, a corporation would get innovative, you know, to their shareholders by just axing things and mm-hmm. and and cutting costs, right? And and not not necessarily for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my early days, my, right out of university, one of my first jobs was as a fundraiser for the MS Society. Mm-hmm. Early on, started in nonprofit. First worked for Prudential based securities in the financial sector. Realized did my securities license thing and realized within a year that this is all about money it's Mm -hmm. all it is about and that's what i felt in uh, 1989 1990 when i when i started there um fortunately for me i guess i shouldn't preface it with that the u.s um, sold the canadian division so i found myself out of a job Mm -hmm. um, and i had to find a new job and i looked and realized oh i spent all my year helping to run the united way campaign internally Mm -hmm. i helped to produce our christmas video i you know wrote my securities exam with great reluctance because I it only took me to year to realize there's nothing my passion was lying in other things mm-hmm. so that helped inform finding a new job in my early days of fundraising you could go to certain corporations um and I couldn't believe how many would say no 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 we get asked and hounded by so many people we don't give to any of you we mm. couldn't possibly make those decisions um which is a, the, the craziest reason i've ever heard for not support you don't hear that anymore no. in fact i remember one of the first people i learned about corporate social responsibility from where i saw it professionalized right in front of me was um london life jan belanger mm-hmm. um i was working with the canada summer games they were a sponsor um, of the, I was the director of volunteers, so they were the sponsor of the of one of the volunteer area, um, and I had to go speak about um, what how people could volunteer for the games at that at their workplace at mm-hmm. what is now Great West Life, but was then London Life, and it was fascinating for me to listen to her speak in corporate terms about engagement and impact Mm -hmm. and um, workforce expectations. I had, uh, being on the ask side and being told no, but for ridiculous reasons, as I mentioned earlier, we don't give to anybody. It was the first time I saw somebody articulate a corporate strategy around giving. Mm -hmm. And that makes every fundraiser's job much, much easier, right? Why am I gonna waste my time going to you if you give to X um, and and we do Y? Unfortunately, a lot of corporations yeah. drift in the same area, which are um, areas that 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 have a high touch and high feel, yeah. um, and maybe or maybe not the highest impact. Um, but anyway, it was amazing to see corporations begin to innovate for mm-hmm. all the reasons you just talked about, um, probably demanded by their employees to a yep. certain degree, because I doubt it would have been demanded by shareholders um, to say, you know, what are we doing? What good are we doing for the world? Yep. And instead of letting money float out of their business to this golf tournament and that golf tournament, they got strategic about it. They said, how can we look at Bell, mm-hmm. right? How yeah, can yeah. we put the same amount of money we're probably spending nationally in a whole bunch of little things into one big pot and actually have an impact so impact, yeah. very exciting but great, it, yeah, and, great help, and, and informed by nonprofits, right where else do you see innovation in our city hmm. I mean, we mentioned dundas place i guess that one's 
somewhat or done. Well, so that, that I mean, we have this massive university, you know, that where innovation is happening all the time. I don't know what the wind tunnel is, David, or what it is it does, but I'm excited that it's happening mm-hmm. here. Yes. Um, you know, and uh, I got to believe that's some incredible innovation happening on the health sciences. And we have, you know, an incredible um uh, hotbed of innovation in our health science institutions and um, and in the research that's going on in our city. So again, people like to, you know, we, we often see printed and, and told stories of wait lists and emergency um, mm-hmm. wait times. And I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are. Um, but sometimes that shies away from the underlying of the story of the next medical innovation that is going to mean that if we get Alzheimer's, um, our par- kids aren't going to have to lock us up because yeah. we're a menace to ourselves, right? They, the, there, and there's some significant stuff um, going on in the city on the health side, on the innovative side. So I would strongly encourage you to speak to the health innovators who, yeah, no, who are the, far more in the know about that because um, it's exciting. Well, I think I was listening to it because of Freakonomics podcast and they had somebody on from the, the U.S. medical side and acknowledging they're a mess down there as well but if you look at you know the amount of innovation that's happened over a year we, we just take so much for granted that so many diseases are curable or conditions are manageable that yeah there is some big big problems um, you know i have a diagnosis that they don't know what to do with with a persistent headache but so you know sometimes the lens that i look at is man i can't believe the medical science can't solve this problem but <laughs> there's a whether you're saying 60,000 different diagnoses and 4,000 different medications they could prescribe and just the amount of problems that they can solve through surgery or through medicine is uh, really incredible. So I think, yeah, I, I do agree that I think sometimes you have to look at both lenses that there's amazing problems, but look at the world that we live in. That- oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, our quality of life compared to someone's quality of life and longevity, um, I don't know. Five thousand years yeah. ago is not comparable, yeah. right? But, but it, <laughs> even a hundred years ago, I don't even a hundred. No, but that. But if you go to the extreme, yeah. and then you start working your way back, then you would say, "Oh my gosh, what have yeah. we done?" We see incredible innovation. I've heard some great keynote speakers across the country with our Discovery Days program talking about um, remote health mm-hmm. and uh, um, um, their ability to dock in a box. You know, you could be yeah. treated and diagnosed from a distance because of the kind of technology that you're involved in yep. um it's That's it's kind stuff. of boggles the mind yeah. some of the stuff i know c-star was working on where a, a surgeon in london could operate a robot that you know does the surgery and some and they do territory. i mean yeah, this is crazy. real yeah. Yeah, they, they do at i was in saskatoon for an event and our um keynote lecturer live streamed called up a computer in California mm. in front of the kids um, and had it, you know, go and take the temperature of a of a patient right yeah. in front of them. So and that was, you know, very obviously they're not going to see anything invasive, but it's 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 here. You, you know, know, what's cool about that, too, is it allows a specialization. So you don't have to have your I assume a specialist in a particular type of surgery. You don't have to fly them all the way across the country. Yeah. See, we it. talk about universally available healthcare, and uh, while it's universally available to any individual, in that there's no barrier to pay, it's mm-hmm. not universally available yeah. if you live in any part of a remote part of this country. Yep. So, um, yeah, it's or phenomenal. Populations, I would assume. Have, exactly. Have yeah. Um, 
I ask this question, you know, for those that sort of travel and you would obviously do this with your, your job, but uh, when you are out talking about London now, so you're in you know, Saskatoon and somebody says, oh, what's it like being in London or uh, what's London about? You know, how do you answer that question? Mm. Yeah, well, I certainly, I mean, I told a little bit of that story earlier. I tell anybody when they're talking about London about our location in South, pure proximity, our location in southwestern Ontario and how mm-hmm. wonderful it is to be <clears throat> located between two great lakes, mm-hmm. yet in this rural setting, but still being a city. Mm-hmm. Um, and people know London. I deal with the medical community across yeah, the country, true. so yeah, they yeah. absolutely <laughs> do know London. It's They really do. They're hands down. They We don't have to convince anybody. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows Toronto, but we, I would say there's... There's just no need to extol about, you're, oh, yeah, but but what about health in London? They, they've they heard of it. They yeah. get it. They, in the medical community, say you're from London, they would go, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> lots of great stuff going on there. Lots of great stuff going yeah. on there, for sure. Um, because we started our, our you know, our early, my husband and I met in Toronto, and we still have a lot of friends there um, who come once a year for a big party that we have. We mm-hmm. go there. Um, it's people in big, big cities like that and and in Canada it's mostly just Toronto who sort of suffer I think sometimes from thinking that the 401 only goes in one direction Mm -hmm. right it it becomes easy to get stuck in that city um, sometimes because of the desire (laughs) and the the, uh, pain involved in getting out or to just go north to Muskoka but uh, maybe a reticence or a lack of understanding sometimes of all that the rest of their own province has to answer so Mm -hmm. has to offer rather so um I think we're we're so uniquely located in that we have this great highway that can take us. I had a daughter that went to Ottawa. Mm-hmm. It's not that hard to just drive all the way there, nope. and we have access to that highway. Um, but it's always um, always good to come back here. So I think if I'm extolling the virtues of London, I'm talking about the size, which is the right size. I know maybe we want to grow a little bit more, but... But I don't know if we want to grow too much because then we be, start to become something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the, innovate, the initiatives. We're in the talk that we're doing now around our river. Mm-hmm. Um, I was involved a couple of years ago with a group of friends and we got the um, Thames Valley Trail Guide from okay, the yep. Thames Valley Trail Association. And uh, the Thames Valley Trail runs from, I don't know, just outside of Delaware to... Um, St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's part of a much larger trail, but the Thames Valley Trail Association manages that piece of it. So over the course of the summer, we walked the entire thing. Um, wow. And it, I don't think, I want everybody to do that. Mm. The, the trails along the river in our city and even just on the outskirts of our city are so beautiful. Mm. And sometimes they're sitting right there in front of you and you just don't, don't know. know. Yeah. Because we haven't um, commercialized the river, which in some ways is maybe good, Um, In some ways, maybe it's a missed opportunity. I don't know. I know that from having done that guide beginning to end, this, the the, the trail walking, the the paths that are being maintained by volunteers so that we could go and walk these trails is phenomenal. I would encourage every Londoner, um, if they do nothing else this summer even, to to (laughs) explore the trails in London because... I don't know if other cities have them. I mean, I used yeah. to bike ride in a big trail in Toronto, but it was right beside the Gardner Expressway, you know. And Probably this, noisier, yeah. You, yeah, you're driving to get there. You get your car, you coordinate the beginning and the end, and then you just walk into nature. Yeah. It's beautiful. We've done a few beautiful. In, even in town, the Pond Mills area, and you can totally get lost in the park. Oh, you can. The park, yeah. But you can, you can park at 
Gibbons Park or Greenway Park and walk all the way to Gibbons Park. Mm -hmm. And then some of that will be, well, some of that is right through Harris Park, but then you can keep going all the way to Adelaide and Windermere. Mm-hmm. And you're in, you feel like you're in isolation. You don't even hear the city. Yeah. You really don't. And it's, and it's, it's and it's maintained. It's safe. Um, it's beautiful. It's, uh, you know, those are unique things that I think we've come to take for granted mm-hmm. um, in a place because we're, we're just that right size. And because we have this sometimes more town feel because we're in a rural setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're phenomenal parts of the city as far as I'm concerned. The uh, last question is sort of a two-parter, and we alluded to it here, but um, do you think London has an identity problem? And if so, is that something we should be worried about? Or is it, no, we're we're good? An identity problem. Well, I don't know. I, I think I'm pausing because I think my answer must be no, because I'm trying to understand what the identity problem would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, just because we can't attach a tagline to it mm-hmm. <laughs> easily, I suppose, that makes it more marketable if we could. Um, we are what we are. We are um, an open city. When I moved to this city, you know, the mayor was fine because she wouldn't declare Gay Pride Day. Mm-hmm. Now we have this strong and vibrant pride festival mm-hmm. and pride community that I, and acceptance and mm-hmm. tolerance in a way um, that uh, that you may not get in really, really small towns, perhaps. Um, we, you know, we, we have arts and culture. We could have more of those things, yeah. um, but then we need people to go to them, right? Mm-hmm. If we can have it, if people will participate, which means, says to me, then we need... Um, something that appeals to broad audiences, not just grand theater goers. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then look, we have something like the Fringe Festival, which floats all over town and has a variety of things for everybody. So I don't know. I don't know that it's an identity crisis. We are what we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're a jewel in the middle of southwestern Ontario. So um, uh, uh, I don't think we should try and be anything more than we are. Probably... The identity crisis comes from, um, if there is one, you know, from our need to obvious from an economic perspective mm-hmm. to attract business. Obviously, we want to attract business. There's no question. And to attract business, you have to have people, and you have to have a thriving population, and you have to have the workforce to support the fact that they should put their business here. Yep. But we have two phenomenal education institutions in Fanshawe and Western. Um, so we have smart, educated people. We're worldly. We're well located. Um, you know, I think we just keep at it the way that we have been. And, uh, and I don't, I don't think we're going to disappear and go away off the map. I don't think we're going to be mired in pure retirement. Um, the work that you and your colleagues are doing in the tech sector. I mean, if you can thrive and probably economically that costs less to be able to do that here oh, yeah. than what you For would sure. need in a place like Toronto, then why would you live there? You yeah. know, so That's, you can always go there. <laughs> you always do that. Yeah. I think, you know, for where the, you know, I come from uh, the, obviously the tech sector and the recruitment and retention is a key yeah. issue. So that's where kind of the, the thinking comes that maybe there's an opportunity to have a, a stronger story to tell, but that's why I'm doing this project because I don't, know what the answer to that is but i i have a feeling that there's uh a need to tell the stories of london there may not be the london story uh, mm, and uh, interesting 
because there is so much exciting stuff going on. There's so much vibrancy, but there's not a common thread that makes it obvious. And even some people within the city still you know, don't see that. So yeah, yeah. how do we make sure that the city is accessible, that it's um, inclusive, that it's vibrant for all the different populations that live into it? Um, and how can we get people to, if they come to London, to be excited about the opportunity of staying here? In Western, I think it's 80% of the students leave. So Yeah, but yeah. what percentage of West of university students leave every well, that would university? Be the, you know, the question. Right? I mean, uh, I bet you it's not so, any you know, Can we move different? that to 70%? So, you know, those questions, um, do we want to move it to 70%? You know, uh, those are the ones that I'm sort of uh, picking at. I don't, as I said, I don't have the, the answers, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. asking the questions. And, uh, you know, there's been some interesting threads. So uh, trying to throw, you know, Fantastic. I have to go back and listen to the interviews yeah, so many yeah. now, but I definitely picked up on a few common threads. So my last question is, um, you know, I, I like to ask, is there anything I should have asked you but didn't uh, about you know, innovation or the City of London or Canadian Medical Hall of Fame or if you have questions uh, for me? Um, I think that maybe we need to ask, and maybe not in this format, um, if we can get to the heart of the matter of what do we not like about London, mm -hmm. then maybe in understanding what people commonly, what you know, if there's a common thread there, then we can combat it and get innovative mm -hmm. about it. Um, it would be, and I, there's no, I don't, it's hard to do because no one wants to be mired in the neg negativity. Um, but if you're, if it's a focused question, um, and people will be reluctant to answer it on a microphone, to be honest, <laughs> I think, David, because they won't want to be heard right. saying those things. So, I, right. We somebody can't, we can't said actually we can openly a, talk about it. a voice modulator. I might get more honest and mm -hmm, <laughs> feedback. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we'll or if it's, um, if that section of it is, you know, at some point or another, you commit to not playing on the blog, but, yeah. but, but transcribing it and then looking yourself for themes so that the same people telling you the good stuff they told you and they're, because well, I, don't, I, I don't know what my answer would be necessarily. Um, there were things, I mean, I think we have some really ugly architecture in this city. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was planned with beauty in mind and all you have to do is go to a big american city to see oh, yeah. <laughs> to see the I difference chicago, yeah, yeah. and we're, we, we don't have to compete with chicago we can't be chicago no, but, but at the same time you know we don't need city. you know empty parking lots beside ugly vacant buildings mm -hmm. and and no strategy to beautify and that may seem s superficial but it's i i know when people come and visit me um from other places I want to drive them around the university and I want to drive them to, um, you know, Richmond Row area, yep, the downtown core through Wortley Village, because I live on a beautiful street, mm -hmm. but right off a really ugly corner. Right. <laughs> and, and like an industrial ugly mm -hmm. corner that, uh, you know, kind of part of me thinks, oh, I wish I wish I didn't have to go down this street every day just to get to my beautiful home. Um, I do the same almost exactly. Well, we live street. right. Yeah, we live <laughs> near each other. So it um, it. You know, it's not about being, it's about focused. What is wrong? What is negative so that we can then figure out how to fix it? Mm -hmm. I saw them do some of that, you know, when they were doing the plan, the, the London, London plan, plan yep. a couple of years ago. And I really valued that there was opportunity for input. I remember sitting, participating in that for a little while. I'm like, you know, we talked about the power center, say at Wonderland and, um, Southdale, my personal power, like that's the, you know, where yep. I, I haunt that place. That's my little go-to <laughs> area based on where I live in the city. And 
um, they talk about, yeah, but if that wasn't there, what could you do? Could you imagine it? And I, I shut down. I'm like, oh, for God's sakes, it's there. Yeah, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine it not being there. But they, whoever was leading that session said, oh, those are just cheap buildings. You can tear them down and do anything there. Yeah, and yeah. it really opened my head to say, really? Yeah. We can? And we can. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe we need to eventually get to some agreement about what isn't great. Mm -hmm. And that would help inform what we can do to make it even better. And uh, there have been a few people who have uh, pointed out some things that the city of London is not great at, you know, the, the systematic racism issues and inclusive and diversity issues. Um, so I think people are willing to publicly or, or not acknowledge those things. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Maybe that's season four. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What are the things yeah. that we know, the low hanging fruit to fix uh, in the city? But uh, yeah. yeah, with that, I will conclude the formal interview but thanks so thanks, much for thanks coming thanks for doing this good to see you david and i have put our time into recording the branding london podcast because we love this city and more importantly the people in it our traction decided to produce this podcast because this work is aligned with our core focus of amplifying great stories to increase relevance impact engagement and momentum if you'd like to support us, you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash brandinglondon. Your generous support will help us to promote this season into more channels so that more people can hear London's good news stories, and it'll help us fund future seasons. To find recaps, videos of some interviews, our Patreon link, or more information about us in this podcast, you can visit ourtraction.com slash podcast. Production assistance for this series was provided by Webisodes. Special thanks to Adam Kaplan for his help with recording the live streams and providing the audio from those interviews. We're also grateful for the technical production support of Michael Dales. Thanks for listening. Like what you hear? Subscribe to the Branding London podcast, like our traction on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah.